0: Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Ray Zimmerman. Ray grew up as an atheist. He explains how he could become a Baha'i from such a perspective. I started the interview by asking Ray where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in London, England, in the east end of London, which is The rough part, you might say. (laughs) I'm from a Jewish background, although my parents were completely secular. And I did have some religious instruction, but I really wasn't able to understand much about it. Much of it was conducted in Hebrew, so I wasn't really clear on what I was supposed to be learning. As far as uh, my own personal life, I'd say I was a pretty typical cosmopolitan London Jew, (laughs) which means that uh, I was interested in popular culture, all the things that young uh, teenagers are interested in, in in the metropolis. And uh, as a young adult, I became interested in um, social issues, and I'd say I was kind of on the progressive side, very concerned about world peace, very concerned about problems of racism and sexism. Uh, and social justice issues in general. And this continued as I became a college student. But I also, uh, as a result of my studies in sociology and philosophy, pretty quickly became an atheist. And, of course, times could be difficult in those days, and I really didn't have any spiritual insight or understanding to help me through the difficult times. And I have to say I made a lot of mistakes as a younger person.
0: Like what kind of mistakes?
1: Well, you know, I was part of the counterculture, mm-hmm. so the usual
0: drugs, you
1: know, drugs loud music, <laughs> uh, uh, staying up too late, right. uh, generally misbehaving, and right. uh, hanging around uh, increasingly with the wrong kinds of people. So I definitely have my fair share of problems in that area. And I, I do feel today, looking back, that I lacked any kind of real insight or maturity as far as what's important in life, although I have to give myself some credit because I was very passionately concerned about social justice.
0: And so how early on were you interested in social, ish- social justice issues?
1: I'd say starting around the age of 16 when I took my first sociology course and I had some community college instructors that, in addition to teaching me the fundamentals of the, the, the science of sociology, also themselves were interested in social justice issues, and so they included uh, materials about uh, gender disparities, social class disparities, problems relating to ethnic minorities and their, the bias against them in British culture. And, of course, England is a post-colonial society, so we had over there a long history of British colonial domination, of what used to be colonies and are now parts of the British Commonwealth and so there was plenty of history there and plenty of contemporary social problems for me to notice and be aware of and of course I was going to college with a very diverse and multicultural group of people who uh, like myself were living in the east end of London and struggling with issues of poverty and uh, just some of the difficulties they were facing because you know for example there were lots of uh, Jamaican Uh, students or students whose parents had been born in Jamaica who were attending my college. And so I became interested in Caribbean music, reggae, ska, as well as uh, rock music, and definitely part of the counterculture. And I think that there were some things that were very positive about that for me. But then on the other hand, as we know, both from English recent English history, but also recent American history, that there was also a dark side, a shadow side, to the counterculture that uh, a lot of people uh were victim to and i guess i was one of them
0: and so how did this interest in social justice translate itself into things that you did when you were 16 17 18
1: well there were a number of uh, large scale popular movements in england around that time which would have been very early 80s late 70s early 80s for example there was a the campaign for nuclear disarmament so i was involved in that and participated in some of their large-scale protests and marches. Uh, There was also uh, an organization called Rock Against Racism, and they had uh, these very large festival-like concerts in some of the bigger parks in London, and I would go to those concerts with my friends, and, of course, all these great English rock groups would be there, uh, lots of uh, reggae bands would be there, all kinds of really exciting performers You know, I was involved in whatever was going on. If there was some kind of protest going on, I would try to be involved in it somehow. Looking back, I feel as though uh, I was anti lots of things, but I didn't really have anything very coherent before. That's something that I think, you know, today as a member of the Baha'i faith, I, I feel that I've discovered something that I can be in favor of rather than always having to be against so many other problems and injustices. I'm still concerned about those, but I do feel like I have a very positive agenda in my life now that's very constructive and helpful.
0: Where did you go to college?
1: Uh, well, I was uh, at a local community college in the East End for a year. Then I spent a year at Sussex University and dropped out, uh, largely because of personal problems I was having. So I did one year of college in England, and then I spent about three years in a kind of doldrums where I was working various jobs, filing, and just doing clerical work you know, whenever I was able to. And finally, uh, my parents decided that they, if they were going to have a chance in terms of an economic future, that they wanted to uh, emigrate to the U.S. And so my parents in 1983 moved to Dallas, Texas, and I joined them shortly afterwards. And that was really the beginning of a, a whole new way of life for me.
0: So what was your situation economically in uh, London that took your family to that situation?
1: Well... You know, in the early 80s, uh, there was a very, very deep and dark recession, similar to what we're going through now, actually. This, is, this current recession that we're going through is actually bringing back some bad memories for me and I guess for my family, too. And so my father, who uh, had been a community college professor for pretty much all of his career, was forced to retire early because of a very uh, deep wave of cuts to public education. And so he basically was out of work. My mom was working for a Texas bank uh, as a, uh, I guess they would say today, an administrative assistant. In those days, they would call her an executive secretary. And she was able to transfer from London over to Dallas, Texas, which was obviously very exciting for my parents. Uh, I was just doing miscellaneous temporary uh, clerical work and at other times basically being on the dole, living cheap, you know, broke most of the time. So uh, I managed, but uh, obviously it was a great opportunity for us as a family to be able to move to the States, although I must say that I continued to be very conscious about racial disparities here in the U.S. and uh, learned a lot as a college student in America about the history of race and uh, racial identity, racial discrimination, segregation here in the U.S. So I continue to have an interest in this uh, area of what Baha'is referred to as race unity, I think, in a very positive way. And so I came to the U.S. as a college student. I went back to school and finished a bachelor's degree in Texas and then a master's and a Ph.D. in uh, English literature uh, here in California at the University of California, Irvine, and then went on to become a faculty member at UCI. Since then, my fields of special, specialization have been American literature, largely dealing with gender studies, but also to some degree working on race-related topics, also uh, cultural studies in general. More recently, I've been working on uh, contemporary British literature and especially postcolonial literature, which is something I'm teaching this summer. So some of those preoccupations from my teenage years have stayed with me, but I'd like to think that I have a more constructive approach to them now. And especially as an educator, I feel like I'm able to make a difference by... Uh, helping students, you know, to learn about these histories that maybe they're not too aware of.
0: What was your first impression of the United States when you arrived?
1: I just thought it was magnificent. You know, I came to Dallas, Texas, and the skyline was extraordinary. I was very interested in postmodernism, and of course, so many cities today have postmodern architecture, including Dallas, which has some beautiful uh, contemporary buildings. And I also found the people to be incredibly friendly, very very warm, actually a lot warmer than I was used to, because the British, as you probably know, have a tendency to be on the reserve side perhaps until they get to know to know people, whereas I found the Americans just immediately very friendly and open-minded, and also I find that Americans are Anglophiles for the most part. so the fact that I'm English, uh, I think has allowed me to have a certain amount of special treatment. Uh, I find that people give me the benefit of the doubt a lot sooner than they might uh, people from some other cultures so I've experienced uh, many privileges being here and I'm very grateful for it and uh, I do feel that America has extraordinary potential as a country both materially but also spiritually and I think that spiritually what was exciting to me is just the enormous diversity of people here in the U.S. and the possibilities for cross-cultural learning and cooperation and understanding and again, this is something that's become increasingly important to me as a member of the Baha'i faith, since we value unity through diversity so much, respecting different cultures, and at the same time looking for points of common ground. So I think America is just a, an incredible experiment, really, in uh, cross-cultural understanding. And uh, sometimes it's been more successful than others, and I, but I'm very optimistic about the future.
0: You really turned your college career around after moving to the... United States and Texas. How did that happen?
1: Well, I think it had to do largely with getting away from a peer group that was pretty self-destructive. That was one thing that was helpful. I owe a lot to my parents because I moved back in with them at the age of about 20 or 21, I suppose, when by rights, I probably should have been finishing up at school in England and getting my first job. So my parents supported me and uh, enabled me to go back to school. And then another thing that was helpful for me was During the years when I was in those doldrums uh, working various jobs, I continued to read a lot. And uh, I was very interested in contemporary culture, so I read a lot of cultural criticism. I continued to read a lot of contemporary literature. I was excited about literary criticism of various kinds. So even though I wasn't officially a student, I guess I was acting like one in my own unique way and just reading things that I found personally interesting. I read a lot about art again I was quite interested in the whole phenomenon of postmodernism and post-modernity so I was reading theory, reading literature, learning about culture and so when I did go back to school in some respects I was ahead of other students because I've been doing all of this reading and, and thinking so much about culture, about society, about politics and so I felt that when I came back to school I, I had a very um, keen sense of what I wanted to accomplish I really wanted to become an educator, I had goals I had a lot of theoretical background, and so I think that my college professors in in, uh, Texas were a little bit startled when I showed up because I was an atypical student, and it was a very exciting time for me, and I felt like I had something to prove, having done so poorly previously, and that's what I did, was I proved myself as somebody that could be taken seriously uh, in the field of academia and could be taken seriously as a writer and as a thinker. My plan was to go on and get a Ph.D., and, and I'm very grateful to say I was able to accomplish that. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done. It feels a little bit like having climbed Mount Everest, but something I'm proud of, and it's opened up many opportunities for me to be an educator, which was a dream of mine.
0: Did you remain an atheist after you left college in London and when you came to the United States and Texas?
1: Yeah, I was definitely uh, a full-on atheist. I wasn't agnostic. Uh, In other words, I didn't believe that, you know, well, maybe there's a God and maybe there isn't, but I'm just not sure. I was strongly convinced that there was no God, no afterlife, no angels, uh, no soul, uh, that religion essentially was a narrative, just a construct, something that had been invented in earlier times when people didn't really have the same sophistication that cultures might have today. I guess I felt that maybe science had some possibilities in terms of explanatory power, was very influenced by the social sciences. And so, yeah, I I really looked down on religion as kind of an archaic set of narratives that probably should be abandoned and actually seemed very destructive to me, you know, a cause of war, a cause of conflict a cause of misunderstanding and violence. So I was very anti-religious, but what changed for me was, uh, as a college student in Texas, I fell in love with Hmm. a young lady who had recently become a member of the Baha'i faith. And uh, what I discovered, uh, my wife, uh, whose name is Becky, Becky Bourgeois, funnily enough, uh, was that uh, I would talk to Becky about the social justice issues that I was so concerned about. I would talk about discrimination and violence against women. And she would say, oh, this is something that the Baha'is also are very concerned about, and we're working for the equality between women and men and also the harmony between women and men. And this was a new idea because I always thought of everything in terms of conflict theory, that if you have some kind of discrimination, that there's going to have to be a battle, essentially. There's going to be an adversarial conflict to um, resolve it. And this idea that somehow there could be harmony between women and men just seemed immediately appealing to me. And similarly, I would talk to her about racism and how we needed to be anti-racist and root out racism wherever we could find it, critique it, analyze it, expose it. And she would say, well, you know, the Baha'is are very concerned about racism, too, and we're working for race unity. And again, this seemed kind of like an alien concept to me in a way, because I was so used to thinking in terms of conflict and injustice, It was hard for me to imagine what justice and peace might look like, and so the idea of race unity was in some ways new to me, even though i had friendships with people in the past from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Anyway, I fell in love. I remained an atheist for the first seven years of my marriage. It wasn't until after about seven years that we had some very serious family problems involving my wife's health and also my stepson, who was about... 12 years old at the time, uh, also having some very, very serious uh, health and psychological problems. And so it was really a terrible test to my own ability to function in the world to have to go through these difficulties where basically both my wife and my son became disabled at the same time. And I was unable really to cope with it. I had no resources. My whole outlook really had to do with this materialist view that if there was a problem that you could just solve it, and where these problems were insoluble, that was the point at which my belief system just seemed to become inadequate and to shatter. And so I was having a lot of trouble myself and spending time in therapy trying to cope with these difficulties. And I noticed that my wife was just doing so much better than me, even though she was the one who had become seriously ill. And I would ask her, I'd say, well, what is it that you're doing that is working for you that I'm not doing? You know, What should I do? And she said, well, I'm just using a lot of prayer. So it was at that time I decided that I would be willing to try experimenting with prayer, even though I didn't really believe in it and didn't believe in God. Uh, it just seemed like a kind of an absurd idea, in a way, to even try to use prayer. But uh, I went ahead and I did say some prayers. And to cut a long story short, I just had some incredibly profound and, I would say, ecstatic experiences
0: I'd be very interested in knowing what some of those profound experiences were.
1: Okay, well, thank you for asking. So, just to give you a little context, my son was placed in a, a psychiatric hospital in another state. And my wife would visit him, and I'd find myself alone, struggling to work on my doctoral dissertation, uh, feeling completely overwhelmed and just unable to cope with really what was a lot of trauma uh, for me and my family. And so one day, for example, I just decided to sit in my room and say a very short prayer from one of the Baha'i prayer books. It was just a short prayer asking to God to refresh and gladden my spirit and purify my spirit and illumine my powers and to make me a happy and joyful being. So I said this prayer, which is a very well-known prayer to all the Baha'is.
0: Would you mind reciting it?
1: Not at all. The full prayer is as follows. O God, refresh and gladden my spirit, purify my heart, illumine my powers, I lay all my affairs in thy hand. Thou art my guide and my refuge. I will no longer be sorrowful and grieved. I will be a happy and joyful being. O God, I will no longer be full of anxiety, nor will I let trouble harass me.
2: My pa- Happy and joyful be oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety, nor will I let trouble harass to me than I am to myself. I dedicate myself to Thee. i
1: This is a very beautiful prayer which was revealed by Abdu'l-Bahá who is the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, the founder of the Baha'i faith being Bahá'u'lláh, a Persian nobleman from the 19th century who was persecuted for his beliefs. And his son, Abdu'l-Bahá, was leader of the Baha'i faith for a period of time and revealed many beautiful prayers like this one. So here I am, I'm sitting in my room, I, I say this prayer, and all of a sudden I just feel this in incredible sense of peace and i'd have to call it bliss pouring down from the crown of my head to the base of my spine and i kind of felt like i was lit up like a christmas tree really it was just an extraordinary experience and all of the panic and dread that i had been feeling about my personal circumstances at that time just completely flew away from me And at the same time, I also had this very uncanny experience that there was somebody else in the room praying for me, somebody who was not from this world, but somebody from the next world, the afterlife, somebody that I knew. It seemed like it was my grandmother, actually, in the corner of the room that I could see from the corner of my eye, just praying for me and kind of grieving over me. And so I did what any sensible person would do, which is I closed my prayer book, I walked out of the room, and I said, well, that couldn't have happened. That's ridiculous. That's impossible. That's just my mind playing tricks on me. I mean, I enjoyed the benefit of feeling completely free of all dread, but I just had to deny the whole thing because being an atheist and a materialist, it was utterly in contradiction with my whole world view. Anyway, time passed, and my wife was out of town again. She would go every month to visit my stepson, and I found myself once again just feeling at my witstand, having a lot of panic, having a lot of feelings of misery, and just uh, feeling out of control, really. And so I thought, well, I'll try it again. I said a prayer, and an identical thing happened where I felt this, it's almost like liquid light pouring down from the crown of my head to the base of my spine, freeing me of all of my worries and my difficulties. And at the same time, I felt like there was somebody in the room, this time somebody else, you know, a young person my wife and I had known many years before, who to my knowledge was not actually deceased. I couldn't figure out why he would be in the room praying for me. Later on, I found out actually that he had passed away, sadly, at a very young age. And so somehow he had appeared in my room, or it seemed that way to me, and been part of this process of healing for me. And this went on a number of times, and each time I would just deny that uh, this could be real, uh, even though I, I appreciated the relief. And then finally one day I was, once again, just feeling very alarmed and lost. And I said one of these Baha'i prayers, had this same experience, which i have later learned is referred to by the, the Hindus as Kundalini. You know, the, apparently the Hindu sages will strive for their whole lives, seeking this Kundalini experience where they reach this moment of enlightenment where, you know, the light of God pours through them in this way. Well, it turns out that I, undeserved, was given this experience very early on, I guess because I I needed it as proof. I I couldn't have accepted anything else. And the last time this happened was a time when I, I said a prayer and had that feeling. And then the person in the room, this time, very vividly in my mind, in my mind's eye, was Abdu'l-Bahá, who had revealed that prayer that I recited to you. And, of course, Abdu'l-Bahá, we have some photographs of him, normally as a very elderly man, because he and his father had been kept in prison uh, pretty much for the second half of the 19th century. And uh, Abdu'l-Bahá was not released until he was quite elderly. So we have pictures of him wearing like a small uh, Kufi-style hat with a white beard and a a black cloak, and this was the image of Abdu'l-Bahá that I perceived in the room, and he was there offering love and support to me. And so this time when I walked out of the room somewhat startled, I just felt that, that the time had come for me to really take this seriously, and I just decided, you know, if Abdu'l-Bahá is going to visit me and try to help me with my healing process, that I really need to take him seriously and take the Baha'i faith seriously because this was the source. You know, the Baha'i faith had been the source of all of these, these spiritual benefits to me. And so I decided to pray every day. That was the moment where I, where I really became a seeker. And I said, if these Baha'i prayers are helping me so much, then I'm going to pray every day. And then in addition to that, I decided that, you know, whatever the Baha'is do, I'm going to do. Even if I'm not a Baha'i, it doesn't matter. You know, if the Baha'is pray, I'm going to pray If the Baha'is meditate, I will meditate. If they fast, I'll fast. If there are certain prayers that they say on a daily basis because Baha'u'llah said that those prayers are obligatory, then I will say the obligatory prayers. And at the same time, I had a friend who had a similar background to me, although he was American, and we started going to some Baha'i gatherings together, and in those days they used to call them firesides, where you would go to somebody's home, and there might be 20 or 30 people there, and a they'd say some prayers, there'd be a speaker who would give an overview of the Baha'i faith. And so we started going to firesides together. And after about nine months of living as if I were a Baha'i, I I actually sat down and took an inventory on paper of the pros and cons of becoming Baha'i. And as I went down the list of pros, it was things like freedom from dread, a feeling of connection and community with other members of the the Baha'i communities in my area, improvements in my marriage, being better able to cope with my wife's health problems and my son's mental illness problems, doing better in my uh, graduate work with my doctoral dissertation. And the list went on. There just seemed to be all these uh, benefits that seemed directly related to trying to live as if I were a Baha'i. And then some of the things that were in the negative column were basically feelings of embarrassment. That, having been an atheist and a materialist for all these years, that it was kind of embarrassing to me that I would have to admit that I was mistaken about some very fundamental things. I also had some um, concern about mentioning the idea of becoming a Baha'i to my family of origin, to my mom and my dad and my older brother, because I just thought, that, especially coming from a Jewish background, that they would be very disappointed that I would choose to embrace a spiritual path that wasn't directly associated with Judaism, or didn't appear to be. And so these were the things, they were more kind of feelings and, and concerns that were in that negative column. Shortly after that, though, I did go to a, uh, a Baha'i gathering in which they were celebrating really the beginning of the Baha'i faith. It was a celebration of the uh, declaration of the uh, Prophet Herald who preceded Bahá'u'lláh and proclaimed his coming, known in uh, Persia as uh, a Bab, an Arabic word that means gate. And so we went to this celebration of the Declaration of the Bab, uh, May 22, 1993. As I looked around the room, you know, the Baha'is teach oneness, and they try to enact the oneness of humanity. And as I looked around this room, You know, there was a a white American lady who'd grown up most of her life in various African countries. And then there was a Persian American gentleman who'd just come back from living in China. And then there was a young English guy who'd spent a number of years in Eastern Europe and was now on his way to China. And, you know, Baha'u'llah says that the earth is one country and mankind its citizens and that we should have a world-embracing vision. And As I looked around the room, I just felt like, you know, here's a group of people, here's a faith community that's really putting those principles into action, more so than I'd ever done myself. And so as we were driving home, I turned to my wife Becky and I said, you know, I think I'm going to become a Baha'i tonight. I'd like to sign one of those little declaration cards that you guys use to enroll. And she had, you know, a somewhat unexpected reaction. She basically looked at me and said, you're pulling my leg. (laughs) Because after seven years of marriage to the non-believer, the atheist, she just found it hard to believe that uh, that i was really serious
0: but she had n- noticed that you were praying and that noticed that you were getting more involved in the bahai community and doing what bahais were doing she noticed all that
1: well for a long time i didn't really want to talk to her about it she had been praying really since we met even before we were married she'd been saying a bahai prayer for husbands for me and so she'd been praying for me every single day of her life you know since she met me and at a certain point, actually, I told her to stop because I felt like it was, seemed inappropriate for her to be saying a prayer for me when I didn't even believe in God. And so when I first started to experiment with prayer, I kept it secret from her because I was embarrassed about it. And I didn't really let on too much about what was going on. But at a certain point, though, I said to her, you know, I'm going to start going to firesides. And she was quite surprised by that. And I think the lesson for her was both a lesson in being steadfast with her prayer and at the same time also being detached because when I asked her to stop praying, she felt like she needed to abide by that. And so I think what she felt was that God was doing for us as a couple and as a family and for me as an individual what none of us really could have done for ourselves. I finally did start telling her once I started going to firesides and when I decided to fast at the same time of year that the Baha'is were fasting, uh, I did let on what was going on but she really didn't understand much about what was happening because I wasn't too forthcoming about it. So when I turned to her and said, well, I've decided to become a Baha'i tonight, I think she was pretty startled. So we went home and I wrote out, I filled out one of the little declaration cards, as we call them, and I put a little note on it saying, I surrender. (laughs) And I turned it into the local Baha'is, and they'd known me for about seven years, and a lot of them felt like I was pretty much a Baha'i in the making anyway. But still, I think they were very excited to see that something had happened to me. I I, I didn't really tell a lot of people what was going on with me, though, because, again, I I felt some, I guess, embarrassment or even shame about the fact that I was having to depend on something that I really didn't even believe in, and yet it was working for me. So that was uh, about 16 years ago. I guess what I'll say is that the last 16 years have really been the happiest years of my life, and I definitely attribute that to having become a Baha'i, and learning how to live a spiritual life and following the Baha'i teachings on you know, how to conduct oneself and how to participate in families and communities. There's such a rich source of information in the Baha'i writings about every aspect of life, and I've tried as best I can to, to follow the guidance. When I do, I feel good. I feel right with the world and with myself and with my God. And when I don't follow the guidance, which sometimes happens, Usually I don't feel that great afterwards. That seems pretty simple to me.
0: And what did end up being the reaction of your family, your mother and father?
1: Well, I actually waited a little while before talking to them. You know, As a new Baha'i, I felt a little bit fragile in my faith because I not only had just become a Baha'i, but I also recently had developed any faith at all. And I just was nervous about talking to them but after about maybe a year and a half, I did visit with my parents, and I said, look, I just want to let you know that, that I've joined the same religion that my wife Becky has been part of. And they knew she was Baha'i, but they didn't really care to know anything about it. And I gave them a little booklet, and I said, you know, if you'd like to learn more about the Baha'i faith and so you can understand better what I'm thinking about these days, uh, you can look at this booklet. My dad's reaction was to say, well, why didn't you investigate Judaism instead? Pretty much what I said to him was that I I had some experience with Judaism already, and the the Baha'i faith teaches the oneness of religion. So in becoming a Baha'i, I actually was learning more about Judaism and coming to really properly appreciate the spiritual and cultural and historical dimensions of Judaism in a way that I never had growing up in a secular Jewish family. So I asked my dad if he wanted to talk more about that, and he pretty much said No. And then, I guess my mom just didn't show a whole lot of interest either. And I think that that's very common with people who are the first family member to become a Baha'i, which is that the rest of the family kind of just wants things to go on as they've been. They don't necessarily want to hear a lot about some religion that they're not familiar with. I think people in general, as I've experienced it, uh, a lot of people uh, are actually pretty resistant to uh, new converts, spouting at length about their religion that could be off-putting to people. And I remember that I didn't really want people trying to indoctrinate me or trying to convince me of anything or even just talking about religion at length to me. So I was able to just back off and be respectful to my parents. They just It was something they didn't really want to talk about. And it's not that they're against it. And over the years, I think they've just become more and more comfortable with the fact that you know this is a big part of my life, and they don't feel threatened by it, and I don't think they have any feelings of disappointment about it either. They're not active in their own faith community, so I guess they feel that it's just a live and let live kind of issue. Uh, I did tell my brother about it, and he actually uh, investigated the faith for a short time and went to some Baha'i meetings. And he once said to me, actually, that if there was ever a religion that he uh, would join, if he ever wanted to join one, that he would join the Baha'i faith. But, you know, a lot of people uh, are not really wanting to be part of a, a rich faith community. A lot of people are more just interested in dealing with their work life and their family. because many people these days are also very uh, involved in entertainment. You know, home entertainment has become a big issue. And, and I think these are the things that were more important to my brother. And, and again, his interest in, in religion in general faded pretty quickly. But, you know, he continues to live his life according to principles of decency. And he believes in God, but You know, I don't know about this, you know, whether everybody has to be a member of a religion. I think a lot of Americans will say that they're spiritual but not religious. I personally have found being religious very fulfilling, but I also feel like I've been uniquely selected. Uh, I was called uh, pretty unwillingly, actually, (laughs) to become a servant of this faith, and at the same time, living a life of service to the Baha'i faith and to... Humanity in general, which is what the Baha'i faith asked me to do, has been so fulfilling to me. It's hard for me to imagine why everybody wouldn't want to do it, Mm -hmm. but I realize that they don't. And I feel that, you know, it's very important for people of faith to respect each other and to respect people that don't necessarily declare any faith themselves. If we're really going to have unity, I guess we need to uh, show respect, you know, for, for difference. I'm willing to share, you know, we're asked as Baha'is to, to share about our religion and uh, make, make it known to others, our friends, our family, neighbors, and co-workers, as much as they would like to hear about it. At the same time, Baha'u'llah also told us that we're not supposed to proselytize or argue with anybody about religion or try to put pressure on anybody. So I have a principle, I guess, of attraction rather than promotion, uh, as they say in the 12-step programs, you know, that if people ask me directly about it, I'll tell them. If I'm having a spiritual conversation with somebody and it comes up, I'm comfortable sharing about my own spiritual commitments. But I'm also very interested in other people's. You know, I want to hear what they think, what they believe, and, and always try to find uh, points of commonality, since that's our goal as Baha'is really is to promote unity and and really reach understanding rather than trying to turn everybody else into baha'is or make everybody else feel like they're wrong if they're not
0: how did your work change as you were progressing from an atheist to a person that believed in god
1: well i'd say initially i didn't really know what to do or where to go with I felt like I had a double life in a way that, you know, at work I was continuing to work with, you know, social theory, critical theory, cultural theory, so I was working with gender studies, culture studies, uh, critical race theory, all of these topics that, that I had felt passionately about and wanted to write about. I realized after a while that the Baha'i faith actually is very compatible uh, because Baha'is believe, as I mentioned earlier, in the equality and harmony of women and men, the elimination of prejudice of all kinds, justice for all, and this would include uh, people who've been formerly colonized or who find themselves as underrepresented minorities, I think probably the biggest change occurred because I had a new ethic of service. And in a way, you know, the Baha'is will tell you that their primary purpose is to bring about unity, but my experience has been that probably the fastest way to bring about unity is through acts of service. And I think it's very clear, actually, in the Baha'i teachings that this is our primary role in achieving unity because Abdu'l-Baha, the son of the Prophet Founder, uh, actually chose the name for himself of Abdu'l, which means servant. So Abdu'l-Baha means the servant of the glory, the glory being Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. And we're told that he's the perfect exemplar for the Baha'is to follow. So one of the ways in which I tried to manifest this ethic of service was that my wife had been involved in some race unity projects, specifically working with uh, an African-American nonprofit organization here in Orange County, California, where we live. And so I volunteered to serve on an education committee. And what I did was I put together a group of people, or at least participated with a a board of people, and we created a, a Saturday Academy for underrepresented minority kids who could come to the UCI campus and receive instruction in SATs, uh, writing, math, and also instruction in the Spanish language and Chicano-Latino history and black history. And so for about five years, I was secretary of the board for this program, and it was a multiracial project uh, involving volunteers from the community, parents, and kids that were mostly african-american and some chicano latino and so this was a project i probably never would have undertaken if it hadn't been for the fact that i felt like god wanted me to do it and that the baha'i faith was teaching me to do it and as a result of working on that project first of all i think we made some difference I made a difference in the lives of these children and in their families also um... it attracted good publicity and membership for the organization that was promoting this and then also personally i feel like it enriched me a lot and I actually ended up getting an award from the NAACP for my uh, work on this project which has no doubt helped me professionally uh, and given me some credibility to be able to write and talk about some of the subjects that i'm interested in in, uh, talking about so uh... In terms of you know, introducing more spiritual topics into my teaching, I did decide to uh, teach a class on trauma literature. Trauma literature, in other words, literature having to do with historical traumas such as the Holocaust, the Native American genocide, the experience of uh, slavery and Jim Crow in this country. And there's a lot of contemporary literature that deals with these very powerful and, of course, very significant topics. And what I've discovered is that a lot of writers who are writing about those kinds of traumas write about them with a spiritual perspective. And so without necessarily mentioning anything about the Baha'i faith or even necessarily mentioning spirituality at all in my class on trauma literature, what I've found is that students are confronted with these terrible tragedies that have occurred, and at the same time they're also confronted through the literature with examples of people who have used their spirituality to overcome difficulty. And, of course, I can't help but identify with that myself because I feel like spirituality has helped me to overcome difficulty. But what I also find is so many of my students are from uh, immigrant families, especially in Southern California. We have a lot of students from Southeast Asia, or at least their parents are immigrants or refugees from those areas. And so a lot of these students have grown up in homes where their parents are really recovering from a traumatic history of war, you know, for example, in Vietnam or Cambodia uh, or Korea, for that matter. And so I found that my students were very interested in this subject and were able to write very powerfully about it. And uh, as we talked about the recovery side of the equation, because, you know, if you talk about trauma without talking about recovery, it starts to become a very dark conversation. So... um, You know, as my students were writing about the recovery side of the equation, they started to understand that for many of these cultures or communities that have been traumatized, that ultimately there's a need for unity, for collective healing, some kind of identity or identification among people that are healing, even across ethnic communities or across traumatized communities, that there's empathy that can grow from learning about each other's situations and that also that people will call on spiritual resources like calling on the divine so for example I teach a Native American novel called Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco it's a pretty well known book from the 1970s where Native American spirituality plays a central role in the book and similarly uh, I use uh, Art Spiegelman's uh, graphic memoir Mouse about his father and mother's experiences in Auschwitz and also Perhaps more marginally, uh, issues of religion and spirituality play a role in the family's ability to survive those catastrophes.
0: Ray, you're still teaching today, right?
1: Yes, I've been teaching uh, mostly uh, contemporary British literature and post-colonial British literature, as well as some recent American uh, fiction, and I do teach a lot of college writing as well, where I always use a multicultural curriculum, so we're reading uh, essays and stories and poems uh, by writers from all different American ethnic backgrounds. Even in those writing courses, there's a very strong multicultural component.
0: And how is your wife
1: now today? Well, I wish I could say that she was all better. It's been over 20 years and she she continues to have a uh, chronic disabling illness. She has chronic fatigue syndrome. There's no cure for it. And so she uh, has had to really struggle with this illness, and she has to have a lot of rest. She sleeps a lot more than most people do, but she's still been able, despite all of this, to maintain a positive attitude and to continue all of her race unity work that she uh, started doing many years ago, working with various nonprofits in the area, helping them with graphic design. And she also created a uh, Black History Hall of Fame display, a very large display that she puts up at local uh, events such as Juneteenth or King Day, those kinds of events. You know, sometimes they'll call on her. I think that people really appreciate that, and and she's made a lot of friends, especially in the African-American community here in Orange County. She's really a, a, a very good example to me, somebody that I look up to. You know, she's always been a person of faith. She's always had an ethic of service. I try to be more like her as much as I can. I try to assist her as much as I can. Um, she's just got a tremendous heart and a tremendous love for all people and uh, a willingness to be of service even despite the fact that she really has some very disabling health problems. So uh, again I wish I could say that she you know is completely healed but at the same time from a spiritual standpoint I definitely see her as having grown a lot you know as both of us have over the years as Baha'is.
0: And how about your son?
1: Well, you know, uh, he's been fortunate in the sense that there's some wonderful medications available for uh, people with those kinds of psychiatric problems. And especially the last two or three years, he's been much more willing to take advantage of those medications. He also is still disabled by his illness, but he is able to live independently. And he also is a Baha'i. As much as he's able to participate, he does. He also has a very strong ethic of service, which... I believe he learned primarily from his mother, hopefully to some degree from me also, but he 's the kind of guy who uh, somebody needs help moving you know he 's the first one there to help him do all the heavy lifting and so uh, i 'm very proud of him and what he 's been able to do. He does go to school and take uh, a lot of physical education type classes and he tries to stay in shape. Uh, he does have some learning disabilities that might prevent him from advancing through college, but again, uh, my biggest concern is that he's happy, and my experience is that he's usually happiest when he's medicated and willing to serve others. And it's really the same for me, you know, that if I uh, take proper care of myself and look after body, mind, and spirit and make sure that I'm having an attitude of service uh, in every area of my life, then I find that I'm going to be happier. And that seems to be true for uh, most of the people I know, actually.
0: Was he at all cognizant of the transformation you are going through?
1: Well, he was in the hospital in Utah when I was going through uh, all of these, the very intense spiritual experiences, you know, in the early 90s that caused me to become a Baha'i. So he kind of has this odd before and after where before he left for the hospital, he was there for 18 months. So before he left, you know, I didn't really have any interest in religion and didn't really participate. And then when he came back 18 months later, all of a sudden I'm a Baha'i and I'm going to all the Baha'i meetings. So I think it was a little startling for him but he was also pretty young at that time, and so from his point of view, looking back, he probably feels like, well, I've always been like that anyway. But he definitely appreciates the fact that he has two parents who are very unified with each other. We we practice consultation in our marriage. We practice consultation with him, and I'm not sure how conscious he really is of where those benefits are coming from that he experiences, but... I think that he's just grateful and glad, you know, that he has two parents that are sober, that are living a spiritual life, that have exposed him to many of these race unity activities that we've been involved in, and given him just a very loving attitude towards uh, all people. Yeah, I mean, I think he'd say that having both of his parents Baha'is has has helped him a lot.
0: Ray, would you say there's anything you haven't done yet that you would like to do?
1: Well, I'm kind of in a transitional period right now. I've just finished, after 22 years, working at UC Irvine, either as a graduate student there or as a faculty member, and I've just taken a a new position at a community college. And I'm excited about that because it's a new opportunity, and I also realize that community college students are a lot like I was, that they're students who are looking for a second chance a chance to go back to school and to make something new of themselves. And so right now my immediate focus is on retooling myself so I can become a better teacher for students who are more like I was, maybe students that did poorly earlier on and are now motivated to come back and do well. You know, other projects that I have in mind, I mean, you know, I wish I could do more in terms of some of the activities that the Baha'is have been asked to do. For example, uh, we've all been asked to open our homes and to offer spiritual education classes for children, also uh, spiritual study circles for adults, and also um, devotional gatherings where people from all faiths can come and worship together. And for a long time, Becky and I had an interfaith devotional gathering in our home, uh, which was pretty well attended, and then unfortunately her health faltered again, and we uh, had a friend of ours in our neighborhood... Uh, take over that uh, gathering but we haven't really been able to do much with children's classes and we feel like that's an area of growth for us so as a Baha'i I I feel like there's always more I could do I'd like to be more involved in some of the race unity activities that we uh, used to do Uh, sadly my dad passed away about 18 months ago and then my wife's health also worsened at that time so the last 18 months have been we've been less able to be active in different communities so I would wish that we could do more of that. You know, I feel very content and fulfilled with my life. Uh, I guess if there's one professional thing I'd like, it's that I've uh, created a textbook called The Compassionate Reader. It's an anthology of readings to be used in college writing classes, and the major theme is compassion. Because of the economic climate, that textbook probably won't come out this year, but my hope is that it will come out sometime soon and that maybe uh, instructors around the U.S might wish to use my textbook and uh, promote the principle and the uh, virtue of compassion uh, in their college writing students. But other than that, I guess I'm I'm kind of focused on my new career as a community college instructor and looking forward to learning what that's going to be about and uh, challenging myself to become a better teacher and a better mentor for uh, young students that are trying to put their lives back together the same way I did mine.
0: Ray, thank you so much for telling your story.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Ray Zimmerman, a Baha'i and educator living in California. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.